0: which God prepared before Him, that we should walk in Him. God, please be me. Dear Lord, thanks for keeping us safe over the Labor Day weekend. Thank you for the friends and fellowship that we are doing through RUF. And thank you so much for bringing us into life through Christ, even though we dwell in sin every day. Please prepare our hearts for worship and speak through Brian
1: tonight as he gives us the word. Alright, what we're doing is we're walking through the book of Ephesians together And we're seeing how it reveals to us uh, the God who loves to reconcile everything that's alienated He loves to clean what is dirty He loves to heal things that are broken And He loves to bring life where there is death So here's what I want you to think about tonight Imagine, um, imagine we're about nine months from now And we're coming up on summer break And we're all going to REF Summer Conference Which is the greatest week of your life and so we are at the beach. Imagine these three different scenarios. First, you're walking along the beach, and you step in a hole, and you, you sprain your ankle. So, you know, you're embarrassed, you're limping, and a kind friend uh, kind of covers your embarrassment and helps you back to the, to, to the room. Scenario two. Uh, it's a red flag, you choose to ignore it because you're going to have fun out in the waves. And uh, about 15 minutes in, you find out that you're farther than you think. And it's going to be hard to get back to the shore. Which actually happened at summer conference, by the way. As a guy looked at me, panicked, and said, I cannot swim. And I thought to myself, why are you out here? Uh, and uh, we made it back to shore. That's scenario two. Scenario three. It's a double, double red. You ignore that completely. You go out. You find that an undertow takes you under. You end up drowning. And the lifeguard pulls you out, resuscitates you uh, with CPR, and your heart starts beating again. Now take each of those scenarios. My guess is your joy and your gratefulness at each, for, for what that person did for you is connected to the degree that you were saved from. Hey, you thought your friend was kind for helping you with a sprained ankle. The lifeguard who resuscitated you, you will never forget that. There will be great joy. Well, at the heart of Christianity, whatever you think it is, it really is eternal joy. If that's the case, how, must, how far must God go to reconcile us to himself? It must be astounding. That's what Ephesians 2 shows us. So let's look at three things. First, we're going to look at our nature, humanity's nature. Then we're going to look at God's nature And then we're going to look at uh, uh, the new nature produce. Our nature, God's nature, new nature produce. First, our nature, this is verse 1 through 3. This is how he begins. He says, and you. And he is speaking to, writing to, the Ephesian Christians. So he is emphatically in these next three verses, almost in disturbing detail, honestly, reminding them of their nature before the grace of God plunged into their life. So verse 1 through 3 is just a description of all of humanity apart from God. Which means if you're in this room tonight, you're, you're in one of two places. You either were once this description, but Jesus uh, has plunged into your life, or you are this condition. And I, I hope that it shakes or humbles us no matter where you are. So here's the description. First, it, it's, it's disturbing. He says... You are dead in your trespasses and sins, which means by nature we are unresponsive to God, to the things of God. How much interest do we have in God naturally to be near Him, to want to be near Him? The answer is much as a dead person wants to be rescued, wants things, not at all. We're not sick and broken, we are dead, according to the Bible. Then it says we're following the world and the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. I don't know how that lands with you. Sons of disobedience living in the passions of the flesh. This is the language actually of bondage and slavery. The term walked is probably, probably too weak or following the course of the world is probably too weak. Because when it talks about living out the passions of the flesh, it's much more the language of being enslaved by something or mastered by something. That, that we just can't help what's coming out of us, that it's just destructive. And I don't know how that lands with you. Because if there's anything college is about it's, about, it's about freedom. I can do whatever I want. The Bible is saying that us doing whatever we want is actually a slavery. And it's destructive. And that might sound ridiculous to you. But here's what I'd ask you to consider. Consider the fact that the Bible assumes that you and I deeply crave something. Deeply, and whatever that thing is—that thing that you crave—you don't so much master it; it begins to master you. Example: I read an interesting little article uh, about Phil Knight, who was the founder of Nike uh, and multi-billionaire, and the reason Oregon uh, is, has a sports program. And uh, it was talking about when he was in—he uh, was 1976. He was watching the Montreal Olympics with with great excitement. Because this was going to be Nike's coming out party. There was a guy whose name was Frank Shorter, who was supposed to be the number one contender for the marathon, and he was going to wear Nikes. And right, he was going to win. This was going to put Nike on the map. Our gear is legitimate. And so he's sitting down to watch it on TV, and out, out walks Frank Shorter, and he's wearing Adidas. And he said, at that moment... What came over him literally made him switch from soda to vodka. And it devastated him. And he said, he started telling himself, this is not that big of a deal, it's not that big of a deal. But reflecting on it, here's what he said. I realized that when I saw Shorter, right, the guy go off in shoes that weren't Nikes, if that could affect me so deeply, it now is official. Nike was more than just a shoe. I was no longer making Nikes. Nikes were making me. That's an amazing admission. It has mastered me. And I just wonder if that resonates with you. Because I'm going to give you a few examples. And you tell me, does it sound like slavery? Or does it sound like freedom? And maybe the first is easy to think of. But you might say, I'm not out of control. I'm not out of control with my drinking, with my porn, with, uh, with my cocaine, with the pot, whatever. I can stop whenever I want. Okay. Maybe. But you do realize that alcohol and pot and cocaine and porn, whatever it is, it's a cover for something else. That's not the thing. There's a deep craving that is driving that. And it might just be a sense of peace because it numbs you to something. It might be that it gives you a sense of connectivity to people around you. I don't know what it is. But I bet this. You say you can stop any time. Just try. See if you can stop for the month of September. And just see what happens. Because I bet the thing that you're craving will start flaring up that it will actually become painful and hard to resist. And I don't know. Does that sound like slavery or freedom? Or, how about this? I bet some of you don't just want it. You crave productivity. You know what I mean? Being efficient, mastering your productivity in school and social life and philanthropy. Here's my question. Are you actually mastering it? Or is it mastering you? Has busyness become a status symbol? Do you kind of like not know what to do with yourself when you have nothing going on? Do you feel uneasy and guilty if you have nothing going on? Do you feel guilty for taking a nap and you live constantly not getting enough sleep? Feeling guilty for taking a nap doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds like slavery. What about not just wanting but craving a significant other? Are you really mastering that or is it mastering you? Imagine this made-up scenario, right? (laughs) Uh, you decide to text her. So you send her the text. And then you see the response bubbles immediately, right? The heart flutters. Oh, like, yeah. All right. And then they stop. No response. One hour goes by. Two hours go by. Three hours go by. You've now thrown in the towel. You can't, your, your day is ruined. You've uh, sworn yourself to singleness for the rest of your life. And then, bing, there's the text. And she says, oh, I'm so sorry. I've been in class all day. It's so great to hear from you. Mood lifts. The sun's bright again. I'm going to be married one day. Right? <laughs> you tell me. Have you mastered it? Or is something actually controlling you? Are you free or are you a slave? And see, I intentionally walk through a bunch of run-of-the-mill stuff. You know what? Because that's where sin hides. And the heart of sin and the heart of disobedience is actually this. We just turn from God. We reject God. We want independence from Him. And whenever we reject God, we put something else in God's place. And you know what we put in God's place? Ourself. Me. A lot of the sermon is coming from a guy named Ray Cortez. He's the one who points this out. Look. Sin at its core is self-absorption. Martin Luther has some like Latin phrase that sounds really smart. I'd, be, I'd sound dumb trying to use it. But basically, what he says is this: sin curves us in on ourselves. That we are obsessed with ourselves. And it's a slavery. Donna Miller says the most difficult lie I have to contend with is this: life is a story about me. Haven't you felt that? If righteousness is facing outward towards God and towards other people, sin is a rejection of God and on others because I'm the point. Man, we just wake up in the morning and the first thought is, what do I have to do today? How am I being treated? Am I going to have a good day or a bad day? Fill in the blank. But in all things, I am preeminent. And that's the disease. And the deal is this, being dead dead in sin, everything being about me, here's the dirty secret. That can actually make you a very religious and moral person. You know that? The story being about you can make you incredibly moral. Of course it can. Why are you at RUF? Why do you read your Bible? Why are you nice to people? Why do you help out with a nonprofit? Because I don't want to feel guilty. Because I want to feel good about myself. Or at some level, I hope it leverages God to, for him to give me the life that I really want. Which means it's all about me. And the way that you know that it's all about you <laughs> is when God doesn't come through, you get angry. And you want to fire him. I remember a story from a friend of mine. REF um, years ago, so nobody here. Uh, there was... Um, a girl who got involved with RUF, and for her first few years she was involved, but she was also, she was just kind of known as being wild, promiscuous, and, uh, you know, had plenty of guys, and um, based on her junior year, she actually was converted. And as she was converted, you know, her lifestyle began to change, and um, her senior year, uh, the, like, great, uh, I don't know, the guy, the dreamy RUF guy, right, Asked her out. And she went out with him. And you know the story. Every other girl in RUF was so excited for her. (laughs) They were ticked. You know why they were ticked? And I get it. Her? After the life she lived? I've been the good girl. Why didn't he ask me out? God hasn't come through for me. That's it. Self-absorption can make you a very religious person because it's, what can God do for me? I don't want to be alone. I don't want to go to hell. I need a good family. I need God to do for me. And it becomes not about me laying down my life for God, but God doing something for me. And it'll make you very religious. And that brings us to the final summation where Paul says we are children of wrath. That's a tough statement. That's not the thing that I like talking about on Wednesday nights. But the truth of God revealed in Scripture is that God has wrath. Why? Because He's loving. See, if sin is a rejection of God, who is life, that means at core we are dead and we unravel and wreck the thing that God's, God loves, which is His world and people. And God's wrath is just His His hostility. Towards anything and everything that is destroying that which he loves. And so because he loves, he has wrath. And so Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it it leaves us with this pretty sobering and disturbing picture. That here's who we all are, either once or now. Enslaved to Satan and passion. Dead. Sons of disobedience. Children of wrath. And maybe that seems over the top. Maybe that, maybe this is your last RUF, because you're like, "I knew it. This is why I don't show up at these things. But at least make it ask you the, make, at least make, it, make you ask the question: Why would Scripture say this? Why would it go to this length to try to convince me that this is who I am? What if this is the only way to life and healing? What if owning the bad news is the only way to the good news? Right? What if you what if you went to the doctor thinking you just had a headache, but you actually had a brain tumor? What would you want the doctor to tell you? The truth. So you can get help. If this really is our condition, man, we're really messed up. And it must mean that we resist this fact. That we're like the guy who goes to the doctor, and everybody knows this person. You go to the doctor and you argue with the doctor because you know what's wrong with you. And he's like, hey, I went to med school, bud. I know. And I just ask you, do you know yourself honestly tonight? Are you desperate? Because if you're feeling the crushing weight of our depravity and hopelessness, it's because of this. It's not because God's agenda is to condemn you. It's not. It's not. It's because His agenda is to heal you and restore you. That's what He's about. But have you realized it? Because as long as you think that you can hope in your own effort, in your own abilities, in your own sincerity, that my nature isn't really dead, then you're just not ready for the doctor. But if you feel hopeless, if you feel overwhelmed, if you're by definition saying tonight, my only hope is mercy... Man, you're in a good place. Because that means your hope is in the nature of God. And He is incredible and rich in mercy. Because this is verse 4 through 9. Look at His nature. Many have said the beginning of uh, verse 4 is the two greatest words in the Bible. The two greatest words for humanity. It says, but God. Think about it. Humanity, dead, enslaved, making a mess of everything that we think, that, that we touch and do. But God. But God did something. And He's doing something. He intervened out of His sheer love for us. There really is a way through and out of this desperate place we find ourselves. And it's because of the graciousness and kindness of God. Because He's rich in mercy. This is astounding. Because the nature of God is one who loves to show mercy loves to save out of His great love for us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Remember, if the essence of sin is self-absorption, I take the place of God. I don't want Him. It's all about me. Realize this. Look at what this is saying. Sin is putting ourselves in the place of God. That means the essence of salvation is this. God puts himself in the place of man on a cross and then places us where God deserves to be placed in the heavenlies. Sin is we place ourselves where God is. Salvation is God places, places himself where we deserve to be on a cross so that he can bring us where he deserves to be, which is in the heavenlies. That's salvation. You see, if your hope is not in yourself but in God's grace... This is a sure place for hope. Because 2,000 years ago, something really happened so hopeless, so helpless, so dead are we, that God becomes a man in Jesus. Not because we asked Him, not because we wanted Him, but out of His great love for us. He becomes a human, why? So He can take our place. And He lives this pure and righteous and loving life. And if you want to see how messed up and evil humanity is, look at Jesus. Because God comes into this world and all he does is love people, heal people, feed the hungry, teach, and you know how humanity responds? We kill him. We kill him. And he gets placed on a cross, assaulted by Satan, the passions of the flesh, lifted up on a cross because we don't want God. We say, Get him out of here. I want to be God. But it's there on the cross. Here's the irony. We don't want God, but salvation comes because He wants us. And so He takes our place on the cross. And He becomes what we deserve. An object of God's wrath. As darkness covers the earth and He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And He dies. There's Jesus. There's the God-man. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, fully enacted, taking exactly what I deserve on a cross, and he's left a bloodied, forsaken, condemned corpse, taking my place and your place. Why? So he can place us where God deserves to be placed, raised in the heavens, seated with Jesus, united to Jesus in a place where there is no condemnation, there is no wrath, but only acceptance, delight, and pleasure. Sin is us taking the place of God but salvation is God taking the place of us on the cross so that then he can put us in the place where Jesus deserves to be placed seated with him it's astounding he died to make us alive he is bound and assaulted by satan so we can be free he is condemned so that we can be recipients of his mercy and his sheer delight I heard a story um, year, years ago about this guy uh, who's involved in a large church in Alabama, and the man had two, he had two children. Uh, one of them was a daughter who was at college, and the daughter had come home for college, and she was uh, leaving the driveway. As she was leaving the driveway, a car broadsided her, killed her instantly. So she dies in her parents' driveway. And there's this large memorial service, uh, you know, that happens a few days later. Thousands of people show up, you know, to express their uh, uh, grief and to love the family. And after that long day, basically a small group of men gather, one being the pastor who did the funeral, uh, the other being the grieved father and some other people. And they go visit a house. And the house they go visit is the 17-year-old boy who had been driving the car. Because the 17-year-old boy was also a member of their church. They walked into the room. You can imagine it is uh, somber. Uh, It's a wreck. He's a wreck. And they sit there awkwardly. And then the preacher kind of stands up and kind of, I don't know, does his preacher thing and starts doing some pastor talk. And finally the grieved father just waves his hand and says, amidst tears, stop it. Like, enough of that. And then he looks at the 17 year old boy and he says, Look, my daughter's life is gone, but I'm afraid we could lose you too. This could destroy you. And I want you to know this I hold nothing against you, and I love you. Now, I want to tell that story because it feels like emotional manipulation. I don't want to do that. But I'm trying to get you to think about the way that that boy must have felt. Probably the only one who could have brought healing words would have been from the Father. And if that makes you go, wow, that is a glimmer, a glimmer of the nature of God. Don't you see what Ephesians is saying? We killed this boy. Our sins put Jesus on the cross. Our rebellion put him there. And God says, I forgive you. I love you. There's nothing between us. All that I have is yours. Why would He do that? Verse 7, so that the riches of His grace and kindness might be displayed. Why would He do that? I don't know, honestly. But I can tell you this, He's that good. And it should astound us. And so we've seen our nature, and we've seen that that should push us to hope in the nature of God. But lastly, that brings a new nature. This is verse eight through ten. And in many ways, the rest of our time together in Ephesians is going to unpack the implication of God's intervention into our life. But look at the two things He described. First, He says that God's gracious intervention it produces humility and hope. Right? If salvation of being made alive to God is not a result of works. It's nothing that I do. It's nothing about me. It's not because I was better than you. He says no one can boast. You see, Paul hammers home this fact that salvation from beginning to end is sheer unearned grace. Start to finish. Salvation is something that Jesus accomplishes, not you. Because verse 3 and 4 does not say this. uh, Humanity is in a bad place, but Brian. But Brian was smart enough and figured it out. But Brian read a good book and and did it. But Brian wasn't quite as bad as anybody else. But Brian got on it. Whatever. It says, but God. And if sin is taking God's place, here's what Paul is saying. Even after you're a Christian, that struggle doesn't go away. We try to take God's place and take credit for the salvation that God has done. And we begin to boast in it. You see, God's gracious intervention means that the way forward in the Christian life is humility. And what that means is if you want to keep the progress of the Christian life at bay, however you picture that, the progress of Christian life kind of comes to a halt with self-righteousness and arrogance. What keeps progress in the Christian life from happening is not your struggling with sin. It's your self-righteousness and mine. What will kill RUF is not messy people struggling with sin. That's all of us. What will kill RUF is a lack of humility and self-righteousness. And that, is, that can be just that little reaction of disgust when she tells you about her night and you think, I would never do that. That's it. That's the poison. That's you've forgotten who you are. It's the little condescension that people feel when they walk in here. And I know I'm part of the problem. And they feel, oh, I don't belong here. If they knew what my life looked like, I don't belong here. These people are put together. That's it. That's what kills it. RUF and Christianity, it's supposed to feel... It's supposed to feel like a waiting room in the ER rather than a waiting room uh, for a job interview. You know the difference? Waiting room for a job interview, if you've ever been in one, everybody's kind of nervous, they got their best clothes on, am I going to say the right answers, everybody's trying to put their best foot forward. That's self-righteousness. A waiting room in an ER room, like people are a mess. Like hair, you know, not brushed, people in pain, people moaning. Because the one thing that unites everybody there is I'm sick and I just need to get to a doctor. This is supposed to be a place that admits we just need a doctor. We need one who is rich in mercy. And to the extent that I'm defensive, to the extent that I condescend and think that the gospel's for those people out there and not here. It's, it's about the only thing that, that stops the good news. But I also want you to see it really produces hope. Because if salvation is all of grace, then that means there's hope for anyone. I mean, anyone. There is no lost cause. If salvation depended on some sort of merit or something that we do, then there are lost causes. Like, you can get beyond it. But if salvation has to do with God's mercy and His willingness to save, then all that is needed, you ready, is needed. All that is needed is my sin. So I don't know if you've ever read the um, C.S. Lewis masterpiece, The Great Divorce. I think it's his best book. Um, but it really is amazing because he, it's kind of his brilliance, he, he imagines this scenario where basically a tour bus for a day takes people from hell and lets them tour heaven. So they're walking around, you watch all these interactions, and one that happens is this man from hell is walking around and he sees somebody that he recognizes, And the man that he recognizes, who's in heaven, who looks glorious and solid and all this stuff, he knew back in his neighborhood, back in his earthly life. And he was a murderer. And this man who was there was actually a pretty decent, upstanding man back on earth. And so he looks at this murderer and he says, What in the world are you doing up here? Like, how are you up here and I'm down there? I would have thought it'd be reversed. And the murderer kind of kindly says, ah, you know, I, I, look, I wouldn't go on about it. But the man says, no, 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 I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you, this is the kind of person that I am. I did my best for everyone. I'm a decent chap. British, right? Uh, British to call cooler. Uh, and the murderer responds, yeah, uh, okay. But he looks at him and says, I always paid my bills. I never asked for something that I didn't earn. And the murderer looks at him and says, See, everything here is for the asking, but nothing can be purchased. It's all charity here. And the man responds, Well, I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. I ain't asking anybody for bloody charity. And that's the picture, right? What it requires is poverty. What it requires is need. Which means if you're feeling like a lost cause tonight, if you're thinking that it's a joke that you're here because of the shame, because of the abortion, because of whatever your weekend looked like, listen, Jesus is actually near. Because all that's required is your helplessness. All that's required is your darkness, your deadness. Grace and salvation flow downward and actually only downward. So if you feel low, you're ready for Jesus. You cannot be too small or too low for Jesus, but you can be too big. Are you willing to admit you're a charity case? That's all that exists. And lastly, that actually changes us. God's gracious intervention means we walk in good works which God has prepared beforehand. I love that phrase. God has prepared them. You contrast it with verse 1, right, where we used to walk in ways of selfishness and self-absorption, but now we walk in good works. The ways of our Master Jesus. What are these good works? I mean, we'll talk a lot about it. the semester, but stick with the text. What does it look like to walk according to our Master Jesus? Well, Jesus, in His great mercy, intervened into a place of death and sin and brokenness and brought about life. So at least doing good works means that now you are a representative of God's kindness on earth. You are someone who intervenes wherever you see brokenness, wherever you see death. So if brokenness is physical with disease or depression, you dive in by, I don't know, chicken noodle soup and destigmatizing depression. That is not weird. And you move forward in humble kindness. If brokenness is a girl being taken advantage of or someone being dehumanized on your hallway or in a fraternity, dang right, good works is you intervening. It's putting yourself between that at even cost of yourself. If brokenness is relational because somebody's left out or rejected or isolated or they're in the system that is the bullcrap of tiers of sororities and fraternities and they feel left out, you move into that. And you treat people with dignity. We do not stand idly by in a dark and broken world because we are recipients of his gracious intervention. And that changes us. The message of Ephesians 2 is this. We are a whole lot more messed up than we think. We are far worse than we thought. But then Ephesians 2 says, cheer up. It really is worse than you thought. But God is more gracious and loving and patient and merciful than you ever dare dreamed. And that brings real joy. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, is that the God that you know? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, thank you for Ephesians. Thank you for this really incredible passage. Um, that reveals a truth about us that we all resist, uh, that we are broken, uh, that we want to be away from you. But Man, it also reveals an amazing and gracious Savior. So would you have mercy and give us eyes for the first time or for the thousandth time to see Jesus, who took our place so that we could be
0: placed with him. In your son's name I pray. Amen.